we've been trying to really focus on red as more of a signal. Uh, like if a measure is in the red, you know, have it be a signal, not be something shameful. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are proudly sponsored by Build America Mutual, Odyssey Advisors, the Government Finance Officers Association, and MuniPro. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, feline disciplinarian, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. Yeah, yeah. For our listeners, I just had to kick the cat out of the room because she keeps trying to chew the uh, cord on my headphones. And uh, I'm, I think that cats are probably, kittens anyway, are probably a lot like uh, how farmers describe sheep and that they are just four-legged creatures that will find 127 ways to try to kill themselves. <laughs> and it's just... Like so, she is. She is a. She's a special girl. Uh, hopefully, she'll grow out of this whole attacking everything that moves phase. <laughs> Unless it's mice. Mice are okay. <laughs> uh, right. The key is to, to find ways to channel that toward uh, productive use for sure. Yeah. So we're uh, we're talking today, Liz, about performance management, uh, a perennial topic here on the podcast, very important to all things state and local government. But uh, for a session today, we're going to put kind of a unique twist on this, and we're going to talk about performance management as it lives in the budgeting function. And so we're lucky to have uh, to talk to us about that today, Michael Jacobson, who is with King County, Washington, Greater Seattle, and he's a performance measurement and management guru who happens to work in uh, King County's budget office. One of the few places in the country that's done that kind of formal integration, standing up a, a performance shop alongside the budgeting staff. And he's going to tell us about what parts of that have worked well, what parts of that have worked less well, and what we can all learn from that experience. Liz, it's, it's in some ways, having the performance folks in the budget shop is kind of the you know, the, the goal, right? If you are a, a, a true believer in performance management, performance budgeting, you ask yourself, where does that style? Where do those ideas about how to make government work better, uh, where will they have the most impact? And a lot of time, the answer to that is in the budget office. That's where resource allocation decisions are made. Budgeting and finance folks see across the entire organization. So they have kind of a unique vantage into this question of what can work better and how, where can we make investments to make things work better? And where can we reallocate resources perhaps away from things that aren't working well? So if you're a performance measurement, performance management person, you probably want to be in the budget office. But there's definitely some trade-offs with that, Lives. We've both, I think, in our time studying these issues, have seen examples of situations where having performance measurement and performance management in the budget office come with some intended and maybe some unintended downside consequences. What do you have to say about that? You know, it's interesting because we a couple of weeks ago we had a guest on here and we were talking about pay for success and and part of that conversation was the the evolution around, you know, air quotes social impact bonds, but the the basis of that is, you know, putting up some money and then investing in an idea, in a policy, in in research and then tracking that to see if it produces the effect that you wanted. But the starting point is money. And and as you pointed out, performance management, that's basically, you know, what what they do. You know, they they track the data, they track the results, they look to see if what 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 the policy and intentions are are actually playing out as expected. And if not, what levers do you need to pull and all of that? But again, the, all of that starts with, with the money as well. But as you noted, they're not always in the same building <laughs> um, or in on the same floor or, you know, behind the same door, depending on how big your government <laughs> city hall is. <laughs> 
but you know that that the tracking the data piece too is something that um, one of the re- reasons that we reached out to Michael is is when we met him back at the GFOA earlier this spring, he was on a panel with me called the Accountability Trap, and among other things, the what what the guests on the panel spoke about was that fear factor around when you are accountable to to the data. And one of the things that Michael and other other folks talked about that I had never really fully appreciated before was that transparency and accountability obviously is is a, is a good thing, but it can lead to a certain amount of fear depending on how all of that's managed, how expectations are managed, leadership, all of that. It can put an entirely different flavor on this whole process of, you know, you better X, Y, Z or else or as you know our guest is going to going to talk about more of a in you know curious investigative you know very open minded approach to data and and leadership it all comes down to leadership in terms of how that plays out for employees and and another thing that the panelists talked about was having different a different discussion internally about the data and what the what the numbers are and then a discussion externally about how, what you present to taxpayers and that's not being sneaky it's it's all the same data but it's allowing your employees and and the people who are actually you know who are responsible for for tracking this and for figuring things out allowing them the freedom to know that it's okay if the numbers don't show up how you expect to that's okay to talk about internally now how are we going to talk about that externally it's you know same numbers but it may be framed differently and um, and I'd never quite fully appreciated that before, particularly coming as a reporter and and having been in some news reporting outlets where it's like, you know, you, you want to get all that data um, because you suspect something's wrong, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> definitely coming at it with uh, maybe not the uh, most understanding point of view. And so having to navigate reporters, the public is one thing, and then being able to to have a safe place to discuss the real, to discuss the numbers internally, all of that's important. And it's certainly a balancing act. No doubt. And it, not just for, for media and other extra, but for citizens, right? I mean, there's a, a sense among citizens and taxpayers that if there's some secret internal conversation happening, it, it's probably not good for taxpayers in the end. It's Yeah, it's, it's such a tricky thing. We always talk in the scholarship and the teaching surrounding public management and, and particularly around performance measurement is that there's there's multiple accountabilities, right? Accountability is one of these words that's kind of not particularly well defined. It can mean very different things depending on the setting. And yet everybody sort of thinks they have a sense of exactly what it means. When you really dig into it, there's lots of different ways to be accountable and lots of different audiences to be accountable to and different ways to be accountable to those different audiences, just as you were saying. I think the challenge then is when you're in the budget office, we tend to have a, a pretty particular way of thinking about accountability when we're talking about budgeting, which is, did you do with these dollars what you said you were going to do with these dollars? And that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the type of conversation that is or is not happening among staff, among leadership, among among elected officials, whomever it might be. This is it's also, in some ways, harkens back to an old debate about the, the connection between accounting and accountability. And critics of the accounting profession are, are quick to point out that accounting it actually does very little for accountability. It's all backward looking numbers that are months old by the time you look at them. And some in the accounting profession, particularly in governmental accounting, have said for a while that a great way to make financial reports and governmental accounting generally more relevant is to include these kinds of performance measures and to have a sort of structured, comparable way to go about doing that. That would allow, particularly for citizens who want to do that, sort of comparing and contrasting some additional tools to be able to do that. And then it also creates the space to have that internal conversation 
using numbers that might be very different from one department to the next or one program to the next or whatever it might be. And that would help to speak to those multiple accountability um, sorts of perspectives. So that's definitely an approach that's been explored sometimes with success and often without success, but it's a really challenging issue. If, if, if the accountability starts and ends with the money, then how is it that you go about connecting the results to the money in a way that people can understand? And that can be the start of a conversation rather than the end of a conversation. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Michael Jacobson from King County, Washington. He works in the Office of Performance, Strategy, and Budget there as the Deputy Director for Performance and Strategy. Michael, thanks for giving us some time today on the Public Money Pod. Honored to be here today. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm, I really enjoyed meeting you back at the GFOA conference uh, earlier this year, and um, and you had a lot of really cool things to say about performance management that, that made me think and some things that hadn't, hadn't occurred to me before. Before we launch into that, though, I, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, particularly how someone with a, a bachelor's degree in biology and a master's in marine affairs and international studies winds up at the King County, Washington Office of uh, Strategy and Budget. Well, uh, I would say uh, if I you asked my uh, graduating uh, self, you know, all those years ago, what did I want to be? I can pretty much guarantee that I would not have identified this position. In fact, I was thinking about it. This position didn't exist 30 years ago. Uh, there was no performance management as a justifiable, you know, career choice. But I will say that there, looking backward, there's a very clear through line. Uh, I did actually get a double major in biology and environmental studies, and I was very inspired by Ralph Nader, of all people, who came and spoke on our quad and said, you privileged people, you should be working with whatever resources you have to dedicate yourself and learn something and apply yourself to the government. This is before his presidential aspirations. And and I, I remember doing water quality studies as a result of that speech. I got very inspired by that. And I basically got into environmental issues uh, after getting out of college and worked for the Puget Sound Water Quality Authority. We we're working on a large strategic plan, you know, ensuring the protection of Puget Sound. And we were gathering data at that time to understand whether we were making progress on that cleanup. And we didn't have a system in place to be able to actually answer that question. Uh, so we had lots of diffuse data collection, but there was no, nothing that was actually time series that could have actually told us were we getting, you know, was anything better. And then when I went to grad school, the, the master's in marine affairs is really an applied public policy degree is how I continue to think about it. There's a focus on economics and program evaluation, things of that nature. And my work was focused around program evaluation. I was really interested in, are we making, you know, are we making demonstrable progress in the things that we say that we're, we want to, and we're spending tons of money on it. My research focused on the UN and the Regional Seas Program, uh, which I've not, you know, pursued uh, professionally, but I uh, was very interested in that issue. And I, my international studies degree has been uh, was a great year of uh, learning about uh, political economy, and I got to go to China and Taiwan. Uh, that's a whole other podcast, actually. Uh, but I don't do anything specifically with that uh, in my career. But essentially, after that, I, I continue to work on environmental issues, the Hanford cleanup. Uh, as well as international technology promotion about using environmental technologies. And then actually had a short stint working for the Packard Foundation as a consultant, helping them develop a monitoring and evaluation system for their major investments around the world. And then started working for King County about 22 years ago. And they were just getting started on performance management. And I ended up coming into their natural resource and parks department. So you can see the environmental through line there. 
issues about program evaluation, measurement, scientific inquiry. A lot of people have told me that I have a lot of curiosity. So I, they say that as a compliment usually. So, um, I, you know, I've been curious about how things work, why things work. Are we making progress on things that we say that are important to us? And then the other piece that I would say is an important uh, thing that people sometimes forget is I grew up in a public sector family. So my dad's dad, my grandfather was a teacher in, in public school. And then my dad went into the Coast Guard, went to the Coast Guard Academy and for 20 year, had a 20-year career in the Coast Guard. So I grew up thinking that public sector issues were interesting, public sector careers were viable, they were intellectually you know, interesting and that you could make a living and there were benefits and things like that. And uh, it was a good living. So uh, that's essentially how I ended up here. There was one last jump from the, the Department of Natural Resources to the county executive's office uh, where uh, Ron Sims at the time was very interested in broadening the approach, uh, not just in one department, but across uh, the county and had seen city stat and uh, Baltimore's work. And so said, I want that. Uh, and so I ended up getting hired and starting the work uh, at the countywide level, uh, I don't know, 18 years ago. Michael, at some level, the, the background that you just described might seem completely at odds with working in the budget office. You mentioned the political leadership of, of someone like Ron Sims. That was obviously some time ago now. I take it that the sort of political context in which you're doing a lot of this performance work, again, from the budget office, has probably evolved a little bit. It has. I've I basically, I have a couple of privileges, if you will. One is in 22 years, I've essentially worked for two county executives. So that is an incredible period of stability and, uh, you know, not a lot of churn, uh, you know, at the top, at the top leadership level. The other thing that I would say both about uh, Sims and Constantine is they're both kind of geeks. They are, they're political animals, of course, but they also are very much, they love numbers. They love thinking and, and new ideas and planning and trying to make something better. So they're just kind of at the DNA level, just really interested in like having a better run government. In fact, one of uh, Dow's slogans uh, that we've been working on for a number of years is to be the best, to be a best run government. And there was a lot of debate. Is it a the, the best run government or a best run government? And, and in the end, it doesn't really matter. It's to be better than we were yesterday, right? So they, they both have had this very strong political and personal interest in being able to show that they are being effective, efficient, and equitable. So those are the three kind of E's that we've embraced to try to show that we're doing a good job. So yeah, the leadership has been has been critical, but then the methodologies have evolved over time too. I, when I first started, I was teaching people logic model, theory of change 101. And now we've been blending in lean and lots of other management techniques. The, the word co-creation with community was not a term that I would have ever used 20 years ago. More than 50% of my the office is the, is the budget team. My uh, co-deputy, Aaron Rubart, manages that budget process. Very complex, many different funds, um, lots of issues there. And then the, the performance and strategy side has, has been the most uh, has been very dynamic because we've been experimenting and finding our way forward. What works? How are we going to do this? Uh, we did create a, a section uh, called continuous improvement, and that has been a big infusion of lean principles. And uh, there's a, another leader in there who's actually in our office, but also on the senior leadership team. So all sorts of interesting dynamics about how different ideas move forward, which get adopted by the departments. The other thing that I would say about this is that sometimes it feels like 3D chess. Uh, and if you're a Star Trek fan, you'll know there's some famous scene with like Spock, you know, playing 3D chess. And 
you're basically playing at the enterprise level, setting up an enterprise system, and then you're expecting the departments to set up their own chess game, but the two games have to connect. And then at the division level, you want them to play their chess game. And in this case, chess is the equivalent of management or performance management, right? So how do you inculcate that concept of management, good government, uh, strategic planning, performance management, accountability at the enterprise level and then down a level and then down a level. So that's hard. That is really hard to do. Um, and I'm, we're not done, right? So I think it's also a long-term investment to do that. Michael, the uh, per term performance management, you've referenced it a few times. I mean, it, it means different things to different people, probably in, in different roles. Can you expand on that? Tell us a little bit about what it means for, how do you define it for yourself and your employees? Sure. We have textbook definitions. We've worked on terms and you know things like that. But I think at the conceptual level, I have a more expansive view of it and see in the, in the broader context of organizational management. It can really cover strategic planning, actual performance measurement, employee performance and alignment to strategy, as well as community indicators and engagement. We have toggled between different schools of thought. And the joke that I've had over the past is, I don't really care what church you go to. I just want you to go somewhere. Historically, we have not been strict about how you get there. Uh, but the goal is that you need to lay out some plan and you need to then articulate how you're going to get to that, you know, how you're going to achieve that plan, how are you going to know you're achieving it, and then have some kind of cycle where you are checking in on that and, and improving the plan. So at its base level, it's really a plan to check adjust cycle, what you want to label it, how many quadrants in your scorecard you want, you have, we have been less uh, strict about, but it has allowed me and my team and, and the county to really incorporate feedback from community, from the public at large, uh, as well as communities that are affected by our services. And then we've also evolved to be thinking a little bit more about customers. And I remember that was a sort of an alien term when we first started using that because it comes with that whole customer's always right thing. And it's not always true in government, but getting people thinking about the customer experience and what you know you might call like the point of sale of that experience. So when we were asking the community, what do you think about the service? They would give us a three out of five, or they would say, we don't know. Because we do a lot of wholesale service. We don't do as much retail service as a city does. And so people didn't actually have a direct experience of King County and for most of our programs. Even our parks, they wouldn't know, was it a city of Seattle Park? Was it King County Park? Was it a state park? People don't read the sign when they park the car and go for a hike. They just know they're, they're at a park. So understanding the customer experience has also been a big part of what I think we've been trying to do. Perhaps in contrast to that focus on the customer experience, we talk obviously in the world of budgeting and finance a lot about accountability. I know that you've talked about how emphasizing accountability in a particular way can maybe have a bit of a dampening effect on the, the sorts of uh, initiatives that, and, and the success potentially of the sorts of initiatives that you're describing. You can talk a little bit about that, that accountability focus and what it means. I think, you know, when we started what was called Kingstat at the time, there was very much a conscious effort to not bring the kind of intensity slash shame that had been rumored in the Baltimore model. Uh, and it's probably been exaggerated over time, but nonetheless, it was still, there was a, there was an element of embarrassment or, you know, making someone look bad. Um, and we were trying to be West Coast nice, I guess, and uh, just didn't you know, try to do that from the get-go. I would say since uh, 
Executive Constantine has been in shape. We've been uh, been in, been in place. We've been trying to really focus on red as more of a signal. Uh, like if a measure is in the red, you know, have it be a signal, not be something shameful. We're actually more skeptical if everything is green. Uh, the questions might be more intense uh, if everything is green because we were a little bit doubtful that that's in fact the case. But, you know, red is more like, hey, this is a communication tool. I am letting you know that I'm aware that something is off and I'm bringing it to your attention. And in some cases, like I need your help to fix it, right? So it's a, it's a leadership dialogue that's happening with those reds. The other thing that, uh, a couple other things that we've done, one is when I've, when we've done work around actually helping people define performance measures, I've always liked to start with the employee and what do they personally, like they're, they're, they, they're an employee of, of government. They came to this work, you know, with a public sec, uh, sector interest and motivation. What do they need to know in order to basically evidence themselves that their job is working, that they're being effective, efficient, you know, equitable. And then when we have that conversation and we identify some things, guess what? Their boss is also interested in those same things. And their boss's boss is also interested in those same things. And the public, in fact, is actually interested in those same things. The people that are closest to that work are the best ones to be able to understand, oh, this is this is going to show that we're being successful. If they are involved in that creation process, I think there's less fear about it. Obviously, no one wants to not meet their goals and their targets and things like that. That's a that's a human thing. But if we can ground that in the kind of the employee's understanding and their motivation, uh, then I think accountability is less of an issue. The other thing that I would say, and this is a little bit on the lean side, I don't know if you've ever heard of the term kata. You know, it's sort of like that that constant movement. I don't know, wax on, wax off for the true uh, you know non uh, non karate people. But you know like body memory of something. And we've been trying to come up with essentially a performance management kata that kind of goes something like this, where you look at your data, your performance, and then you help understand it or contextualize it by looking at a target. And then we try to understand why is it at or below that target? That's a key thing. A lot of people can show you the graph, but they can't explain why. And then Based on that why, what's your action or countermeasure to address why it's below that target? And then basically rinse, lather, and repeat. Keep doing that, and that's the kata. It's like if you can go through those steps, you're effectively doing performance management. Uh, you don't have to put a lot of fancy words to it, but I think to do that in a basic way and to have that be a standard practice across the government would be, that would also kind of decrease the accountability threat and have it be, this is just what we do. This is how we do management, and this is important to us. I think what leadership says in those meetings is, is so important. And if they ask genuine questions with curiosity, trying to understand versus questions that are more blaming and shaming, that right there just changes the dynamic. Leadership asking open-ended questions, wanting to understand why things are going on. Oh, what did you learn from this kata? No one's using the term kata, by the way. Uh, and then having the, you know either leadership or sometimes they're inviting folks that are closer to the work talk about that raises up those issues and allows a, a more authentic experience. Is there, a, I was hoping you could expand on that a little bit. Is there a particular time that sticks out in your mind where, where, where that communication has been particularly effective? I mean, it's just thinking about it from, from the worker's perspective. It is hard when you're asked a question not to immediately start thinking, what have I done wrong? <laughs> you know? So how do you, how do you navigate that? 
So I think some of it is uh, you have to recognize that the meeting is like on the calendar as, you know, 30, 45 minutes, but there is preparation, right? So it is coaching the employees about, you know, how to communicate with leadership, what to talk about, be prepared for questions, run through some of those scenarios. So it's trying to, you're not just spitballing it, right? You're actually preparing and being thoughtful about it. We have a health through housing program where we've basically been buying hotels for folks that are experiencing homelessness and trying to convert them into uh, housing facilities. Um, and then with our metro transit services, there, there's a lot of times, there's a lot of interest, shall we say, in those two programs uh, from the community and, and from elected officials. And they're, they're daily under a lot of pressure. I think, you know, when we come into these settings where we're having those conversations and what we're now calling operations reviews, the goal is to understand it and say, okay, you know, we're off on the, on the target for the bus for on-time performance. Is that because we didn't have a driver or is it because there was a mechanical or is it because there was traffic? And being able to drill down into that and understand that really helps contextualize. Oh, well, actually it was, we didn't have a driver. We are behind on hiring drivers and finding drivers right now is really hard. And so maybe that becomes an HR strategy that they need help with from senior leadership. And so you, they walk away like, oh, I've been heard. And now we're getting central HR to help us on our recruitment strategy so that we can reduce this source of, uh, of, of delay. There's those times where I think where resources have been offered, you know, leadership support has been made. Congratulations are offered in these meetings too when someone's done something well. You know, we're always encouraging folks to bring forward the success stories as well. We don't just want it to feel like going to the dentist, uh, you know, and, and it feeling like, it, you know, in some kind of a more negative cultural way. So, Michael, it seems too like elected officials would much rather have the kind of conversation that you're describing than try to translate their wants and needs into, you know, bureaucrat speak, translate what they're saying into the language of the budget, line items, performance measures, and rather just have a conversation about how are users experiencing this or are we accomplishing the things that we would like to accomplish? It seems a much more natural thing for them to do. I tend to agree. They also want to have some evidence though. So it's not just a conversation, right? You, you want to see the graph, you want to see the, the chart going up. So yeah, I, I think it's, it, it's, a, it's a combination. Our senior leadership team tends to be the most engaged in this, this information. And that, that's true on the kind of people, HR side, the operations side, budget side. We've actually tried to steer people away from talking about money because they have many other venues for talking about money and, and you know, getting, getting budget requests approved. This is really to understand where our operations and performance is versus, you know, where we are on funds. We have a whole separate process for monitoring financial financials. We also have a separate process for measuring key investments, we, as we call them. This is not Amazon and uh, Facebook investments. This is uh, new programs that we've invested in in the last budget. And then we are looking more carefully at those over time, uh, making sure they have performance measures, that they're spending the money as anticipated. That's all part of our enterprise management system. So we have these op operations reviews, but we also have investment monitoring. We have financial monitoring. We're looking at enterprise priorities on a regular basis, the uh, top level priorities like climate and equity. And then we're also looking at annual plans. So down at that granular level, each department submits an annual plan and says, this is what we're going to do this year. And we are, the senior leadership team is reviewing that on a quarterly basis, basically. 
Michael, there's always this uh, kind of fundamental tension when you get into this world of performance and outcomes and that the kinds of progress you're talking about are really systems level change that can take years or, or decades even. And then we have elected officials who serve four-year terms or whatever the term might be. And so reconciling those different timeframes can be um, a real challenge. How do you, as you're working with agencies on this, you know, set the expectations about the, the pace of change What's a reasonable expectation for what kind of progress to expect and setting the target just right, so to speak? So I don't, there's not a simple answer to this. This is a, this is a vexing question for us. Um, obviously, people talk about the quick wins, things like that, but quick wins are not often structural wins, right? They're, they are quick wins. They're not deeper. Um, and so to me, the, the best response or answer to this kind of challenge is to do, you basically have to do both. You have to keep your eye on what's something that's going to have a quicker demonstrable success, as well as then what do you need to be putting in place year two, year three, so that you can get those more structural issues. There is an example um, we have around uh, planting a million trees. We set out to do that. And at the time that was considered an audacious goal. Turns out uh, through good planning and smart work and, you know, we had some resources, we got the million trees planted. So rather than just like pack it up and say, okay, good enough, we're going home. They raised the bar. They said, okay, now it's 3 million trees. And everyone's like, what? (laughs) So maybe they were excited, but, you know, planting 3 million trees you know, those two additional million trees becomes a lot harder. And it becomes especially a lot harder if you're trying to do it in a way that has shorter term impacts, such as creating cooler areas in urban spaces where there are fewer trees, but planting and sustaining a tree becomes harder than going out to Eastern King County and planting a tree where there's a whole bunch of other trees already. So uh, you don't have to know much about our geography, but we have like dense urban areas. And then we have, you know, the Cascade foothills. And so you could plant a whole bunch of trees in the Cascade foothills, you'd meet your target, but doing planting the trees in an equitable way is actually quite significantly more difficult. They did raise the bar, but I think the other thing that they were able to do is not just stay stuck on that, oh, 3 million, 3 million, 3 million. It's a, it's a good goal. Um, it's a good, you know, vision, but you also then have to say, okay, well, what are we going to do by the end of this year? What are we going to do in six months from now? What are we going to do by the end of next year? So you have to be able to break it down and give a more operational strategy so that it's not just lip service and it's not, you know, it's actually realistic and you can obtain it. Uh, I had a personal experience of this. I was trying to raise some money on Facebook one time and I put a big goal out there and like no one responded. (laughs) It just too far away. And, you know, when I lowered the goal, I think I put $500 or something. And I don't know if in Facebook land, that's probably a lot of money. And when I moved it down to 200, all of a sudden someone dropped 50 and then someone else dropped 20. And all of a sudden I made, you know, 200 easily. And then I was like, oh, now I'm going to put it back up to 500. And then people saw there was like a little enthusiasm and it got going. Uh, and I made, I think I got $1,000 in the end, but I didn't, by starting too high, it was kind of a turnoff. So um, I think that there's some there's some broader performance management lesson uh, learned through my Facebook fundraiser there as well. So our listeners are all over governments, state, local, special districts of all different sizes, shapes, locations, et cetera, many of which I'm sure um, are very interested in what you're saying, Michael, and maybe some that have actually tried some of this and uh, never got it off the ground. What advice do you give for people looking to create this, the sorts of structures and processes and successes that you all have had in the performance measurement and performance budgeting space? Yeah, so a couple things. Uh, so having a 
strong leader is really vital. Uh, not everyone has that. And you still want to make progress. And I've, I've done an article in the past about leading from the middle. So wherever you are, you don't have to have a fancy title. You don't have to be the deputy director or whatever. Uh, you know, you can still lead a process improvement where you are in your work. Uh, and you then people will notice. The people you're working with will notice that things are better. The, maybe your boss will notice that things are better. Or maybe they won't. It's not really whether other people notice. It's like, was this a satisfying way to spend your time? Did Did you remove an obstacle that you are, you've been facing for the last three years and you got it out of the way and you fixed the process, your job's just better. We've talked about uh, kind of sand in the saddle stuff, you know, little irritants that just annoy you over time. Can you, can you eliminate that? Is there, an, is there a step that's there from something from five years ago? So taking it on whatever scale you have kind of a control and autonomy to work in, I think is vital. I do think there are certain skills like lean, performance measurement, community engagement, program evaluation, all those are helpful tools, but ultimately it comes down to kind of wanting to be a problem solver versus just a complainer and being willing to point things out that people have been living with, you know, which often means challenging status quo. That's a that can be uncomfortable, right? People are used to certain things, even if they don't like them and challenging the status quo becomes to some people disruptive. But then ultimately, I think there's a assumption that's, that things can be better. I've been inspired by Brian Elms. I've been inspired by Ken Miller and, and those books. I read Barrett and Green for stories of successes in other places. Hopefully your listeners are familiar with some of these folks. Uh, they've laid out the pathways and the, the sort of what, what normal should look like in a, in a, a live dynamic government. One last thing, there are lots of other people out there like you. It is often lonely and maybe even isolating to be in this role. And I would reach out to whatever group you think has a group, similar group, and could be Association of Government Accountants, it could be GFOA, it could be ASPA, uh, it could be your local uh, local government you know, group. There are people just like you also wanting to, things to be better um, and having some colleagueship and companionship with them can be very beneficial for the for the psyche. Well, thanks so much to Michael Jacobson from King County, part of the Budget Officer, the Office of Performance Strategy and Budget, telling us all about how to make government work better, as well as telling us about everything from karate to Spock to dentistry. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time. Really, really wonderful conversation with you today. It was great to chat with both of you this morning and uh, have a nice day. Well, thanks again to Michael Jacobson. That was such a great conversation. Uh, a lot of food for thought there. And we talked, obviously, quite a bit about data and data conversations. And so I, I wanted to, for this week's Ripped from the Headlines to uh, to talk about a story I saw recently in Route 50. It's called One City's Data Conversations Help Confront Pressing Challenges. This is by uh, reporter Chris Teal. And it's about Henderson, Nevada, and how the city has turned to a data-driven approach to its water shortage. And and now of course we think of like water usage and meters. I mean, obviously we know about that data, but this um, effort goes beyond that. A few, few pieces from the story here that, that Chris wrote. So uh, Henderson is in the Mojave Desert. It's about uh, 16 miles Southeast of Las Vegas. 
and it's got more than it's it's more than a quarter of a million people there, about three hundred thirty thousand actually. And so it gets its water from Lake Mead, but the water levels have been critically low after years of drought. Uh, it's only about thirty percent full. Henderson's conserving water, but it's also u- using data to make sure that that effort is successful. And so it's come up with two methods to reduce water usage. One is mandating the removal of decorative only grass from certain properties. Reminds me of a while back when I was talking about grass lawn shape. In California, <laughs> um, the uh, the other one is uh, converting non recreational grass in all its parks to drought tolerant grass by 2026. So that's not too long of a time. Okay, so here's where the data comes in. It's estimated that the first thing, the the no grass lawn stuff, will save 10% of the city's water supply, while the non recreational grass removal will save around 150 million gallons of water each year. And so it is tracking that to make sure that these methods are working. It's measuring its progress through community sentiment, which I thought was interesting. That's kind of like a qualitative data approach. The efficiency of water use at city facilities and enforcement of water conservation regulations. This is all part of the city's larger climate strategy. And their goal is to reach net zero for consumptive water use by 2035. Uh, this, of course, is run by the Office of Performance and Innovation. So the the woman who heads up that office is Kirsten Farmer. Um, uh, she's a data scientist in, in the office, excuse me. Uh, she talks a bit in the story about um, kind of what we what we've talked about also earlier in this podcast about managing data and managing your employees and, and how how to tell that story. She quotes writer Brene Brown, who once said, stories are just data with a soul. And I, as a writer, really love that. I really relate to that. So a uh, farmer from the city of Henderson says that data is meant to be your divining rod. With it, you can identify situational context, you can attach meaning, and in that way, it does become a story. And they've bolstered educational offerings. They are basically messaging this across the city. This isn't just an Office of Performance and Innovation thing. This is a city of Henderson, Nevada thing. They're doing it with water, but I imagine there there are other stories to tell across the city as well. You know, the, I think the thing that kind of made this rise to the top for me were those two were those two pieces. The one is just that that educational aspect of messaging across the city that, you know, we are about data-driven results, but this is all, you know, everything is all okay. This is about learning. This is about being able to tell the story and knowing what what the foundation of that story is. And and the other piece I thought that was interesting is how the city's using data to actually track its experiments and its and its different ways of of reducing water and and also just that goal of net consumptive uh, net zero consumptive water use uh, by 2035. That's uh, that's a tall order. <laughs> so that's enough out of me, Justin. Uh, what what is your what your take your reaction to 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 this? story. Yeah, it's a great piece and appreciate the Brene Brown quote as well. It's something that I think we all, when you when you teach this especially, we, we really try to make that point to our students, just as it said that at the end of the day, well, these are stories and it's really just a matter of of what sorts of stories we want to tell and and where we want those stories to come from. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about this is I, what I was really struck by was the the kind of feedback mechanism that's that's really been tapped into here. Like we, we talk all the time about data intelligence or business intelligence as kind of the goal of, of performance measurement and performance management. And this is an illustration of exactly that, really combing through patterns in, in these data to understand the experience that 
in this case, water consumers are are having. And, and it's not just any experience with water consumption. It's one it's experience under some real constraints and some real concerns about the, the future of water going forward. So it's a really interesting example of, you know, when you have a, a sort of data analytics shop whose mission is to cut across the entire organization and add value in lots of different ways. And to do that by listening first, by taking that, that posture of let's take intelligence that we can take from the data we have and, and, and listen to the story in some ways that citizens and consumers are telling us. Uh, that's a really powerful thing, something that a lot of places strive for, but very few have done successfully. I think this is a really good illustration of a place that seems to have done it quite successfully. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money. Hey, Public Money Pod listeners. The UChicago Harris School of Public Policy is excited to announce that applications are now open for the upcoming ESG and Impact Investing Credential Program. I'll be instructing this course alongside John Oxtopy, Senior VP and Director of ESG Investing at Aerial Investments. We'd love to have you join us on campus on October 29th and 30th for two days of in-person lectures, case studies, networking sessions, and guest speakers. We'll cover key topics such as the policy and regulatory landscape for ESG, impact investing and measurement, financing sustainability, public market strategies and shareholder activism, private market strategies, and public-private partnerships for ESG. This course is a great way for investors or philanthropists to learn how to evaluate and manage impact investment opportunities using various frameworks, techniques, and toolkits. For enterprise leaders to gain strategies and methodologies to improve ESG performance, for public policy and regulation makers to develop more effective policies and to promote the healthy development of their industry, for a consultant or risk management professional who wants to acquire frameworks and analytical tools to better serve clients' development goals, and anyone else working in the ESG space. Discover the UChicago Harris difference when you apply today. Explore the program at har.rs slash Harris ESG. That's har.rs slash Harris ESG. Hope to see you there.